As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm shortly going to be speaking to my dad, John Wyatt, for our latest discussion in our series on coronavirus. This time, it's all about vaccines. There are about 40 different potential COVID vaccines already being tested on humans, with about 100 more at earlier stages of development in the lab. The delivery of a vaccine is seen by many as the silver bullet which could end the pandemic for good but they are actually more morally complex than we might at first assume. Join us as we sift through the ethical questions around clinical trials, testing vaccines on humans, how they can be most equitably distributed, and even what material they're made with. So John, uh, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, today we wanted to take a, a bit of a deep dive into one particular part of the coronavirus pandemic that's becoming more and more prominent part of the conversation, which is the question of vaccines. Um, I think more and more people are seeing uh, a potential COVID vaccine as, as our best way out of the pandemic, um, as we're seeing kind of cases rise across many countries, social distancing is becoming harder and harder to uphold and has obviously huge economic impact. People are looking almost as this kind of silver bullet or would be a vaccine and, and a, the best thing available to allow us to go back to, to something approaching normal life. Um, the encouraging thing, I suppose, is that there are literally hundreds of, uh, of vaccines currently under development. Um, uh, last numbers I saw in September were, were there's about 40 different vaccines that are currently involved in clinical trials on humans um, and another 92 separate vaccines which are under active investigation in lab experiments that haven't got yet to the to the clinical trial phase um so it's, it's amazing um the amount of work that's going on i mean there's never been this degree of focus on vaccines and vaccine development you know it's it's in some ways it's analogous to the manhattan project that happened in the second world war when all the resources of the industrial military complex were focused on trying to get uh, and develop nuclear weapons. It's, I mean, it's not quite that, but there's nonetheless an extraordinary uh, focus at the moment on, on vaccine development. And that's probably something that that we should really be grateful for, you know, that, that this, this, this pandemic has arrived at a point in which vaccine development and science has got to the stage where, we, you know, if we do throw lots of money and resources on it, we can speed up a process that in the past took sometimes decades, hopefully as, into as short as a period as a year. Absolutely. I mean, if you go back into the history of medicine, um, you know, vaccines were, were one of the first 
effective medical interventions for infections. I mean, before then, terrible epidemics used to sweep through uh, the cities, um, measles, smallpox, diphtheria, pertussis, whooping cough, um, and, and terrible killers, particularly of young children. Um, and so the, the first development of, of vaccines uh, for, for smallpox um, was a most extraordinary development. And, and um, I, think, I think part of the vaccines have been so successful that modern parents in particular have got very blasé about these infections. Um, but I, I think what most people don't realise is, is the amount of work uh, that goes on, or has gone on, in the development of, of safe and effective vaccines. And of course, now... Uh, yes, we should be extraordinarily grateful and, and grateful to God that um, that vaccine technology has advanced to such a stage. But, you know, I think from my medical perspective, I do see many, many pitfalls along the way. Hmm. So you've actually done a fair amount of clinical trial work uh, in a previous life when you were a kind of practicing medical doctor in, in Central London Hospital. Do you want to share a little bit about exactly how some of the trials will work and 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 particularly the ethical implications about how they're managed when you're testing out a new medical treatment such as a vaccine. Yes, I, I was worked as a as a clinical researcher uh, for many years at, at UCH in, in central London, um, not in the area of vaccines. I, I was working with new treatments for brain damage and particularly the development of cooling technology as a way of uh, treating babies at risk of brain damage. Um, and so uh, I was involved in these three phases of trials. Of clinical trials have been uh, divided up into phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one is entirely starting to just to look, is it, is it safe? Is it going to kill people? Um, so th- so the, the question you're asking, uh, you know, and, and it's, you know, I was involved in the very first time that we deliberately chose to cool a baby pretty almost the first time in the world and um, it was an extremely nervy experience because you just don't know what's going to happen um, that's the phase one trial the phase two trial is where you start collecting uh, efficacy data so you're starting to look at whether there's um, any evidence that it's actually effective um, as well as increasing your safety, getting more and more safety information. But the most important phase is, is the so-called phase three trial, which is then a much bigger trial. And, and you do what are called power calculations. You, you work out in advance how big an effect you're likely to get. And on that basis, how many hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of research subjects do we need in order to demonstrate that this is uh, both safe, not only does it not kill or harm people, but that it actually can be proven to do good. And in the case of a vaccine, what we're looking for is clear evidence that it reduces uh, the rate of infection with the coronavirus. And so what a phase three trial involves is is you randomise, you, you take a huge population, you ask them all, do they agree to be part of this trial? You have to give informed consent and it has to be not coerced and, and you give them all the information that you have available. 
And then once people have enrolled in the trial, you randomise them. In other words, you try to get end up with two groups who are matched in every way as closely as possible in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of underlying conditions and so on. The only difference is that half of them are going to receive a placebo, in this case an injection which is going to have nothing but salt water in it, harmless, and the other half are going to get the active ingredient. And the trial is going to be what's called double blind, which means neither the patient nor the doctor knows whether or not this particular patient is getting uh, the placebo or whether they're getting the active vaccine. And then what you have to do is you have to follow up these thousands and thousands of people uh, with great care to try and work out whether any of them get infected with the coronavirus. And after eventually, uh, after thousands and thousands of people have been studied and followed up, you measure the number who got infected with coronavirus in the two groups. And what you hope you can demonstrate is that the groups who actually received the um, the virus, the vaccine, have a significant reduction in the in the total number of people infected by uh, the virus compared with the group that got the saline. Gosh, so is this final stage, this stage three, where it's been, you know, injected into the arms of, of, of thousands of people, is there any idea how long that stage can take or does it depend how, how I guess, how, how quickly the virus is spreading and so how long it takes for enough people to come into contact with it and either get infected or be protected? Yeah, well, th- this is, of course, a huge issue when you've got a rapidly changing situation i mean the 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 situation with the pandemic is changing literally from day to day from week to week and so predicting how many people are likely to be infected in both groups i mean if we recruited 10,000 people and yet it so happened that only 10 in each group got infected by the virus then there's no chance of telling whether the vaccine actually worked because the numbers are not going to be statistically significant. Um, So you have to try to ensure that you're recruiting people with a sufficiently high infection rate, that if the vaccine works, you're going to be able to, to see it. And it seems to me that the recruitment of these volunteers raises quite a lot of interesting questions, because there's almost a double risk you know, there's the risk of injecting a, a kind of potentially unproven substance into your body, which, you know, I know it's been through some safety trials, but it's still not f- totally confirmed. Is that right, that it's safe for humans? And there's, yeah, I mean, know, there's been some news stories we've seen of, in the in the most famous one, that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine had to be paused because they were investigating whether some of the people in the subject of the trial had, had some, was it encephalitis, and they had to try and figure out if that was caused by the vaccine or was separate coincidence. Absolutely. And um, so so the answer is no, we don't know it's safe. And, and sadly, the history of medicine is littered with medicines that were thought to be completely safe, 
and that certainly suddenly turned out to have absolutely devastating consequences. I mean, one of the best known tragedies is what is the medicine called thalidomide, um, which was a tranquilizer um, and, and sedative given to pregnant women, among other people, um, and but subsequently turned out to cause horrific abnormalities to the fetus. That was completely unsuspected. So, yes, we don't know that the vaccine is safe and you have to make sure that you're explaining to your volunteers, whoever they are, that um, it's possible that the vaccine will do harm, but all, all the evidence is that it's safe. But of course, there's the other question, and that is you might receive the saline uh, yes. when you're actually being exposed to the virus. And hmm. um, whereas if you were in the other group, you might have got some protection. So, so it's a huge risk that the volunteers take in that sense. Well, it's certainly a risk. I mean, it's to say that it's huge because all of us are at risk of getting the virus. You could argue it's it's no greater than for the rest of us. But nonetheless, the, you have to explain clearly um, to people that that you genuinely don't know whether they're going to get the virus or the vaccine or, or the placebo. So the way that these things operate is that actually you have a separate committee. So you, you have a trial, you have a, a, a group of doctors and scientists who are actually running the trial and who are responsible in making sure that it's being run properly. And they're responsible for recruiting the volunteers and for actually giving them the, the drugs and so on. But then you have a separate committee of people, of, of doctors and scientists and experts, which is an independent data monitoring and safety committee. And um, their job is to be collecting the results and seeing what's happening in terms of the whether there have been any worrying signs of complications, unexpected uh, side effects and so on. But they're also collecting information about um, how many people have got the virus, have been infected, and is there any evidence that the those who receive the actual real uh, drug have are being protected? So it's been decided that you can't give this information to the people actually running the trial because it would skew them and mean that they're no longer genuinely um, uh, just practicing the trial according to the best principles. And that's why you have this separate committee um, the monitoring and safety committee that is um, is is not is allowed to see the data, but they're not allowed to communicate it to the main steering committee. Hmm. And this is often talked about as the kind of gold standard for clinical trials: a randomised, double-blind, randomised controlled trial. But obviously, as you've explained, it requires a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of paperwork. It's large. Takes, normally takes a long time. Do you think there's a case in an emergency situation such as the pandemic for cutting some of those corners if it gets us to a vaccine faster? I mean, it's a really interesting and difficult question. But the reason that um, this very complex structure has, has grown up and been developed over years is, is because we've all learned the hard way that... Um, we need to be confident that the medicines that we're prescribing meet these two criteria. They're both genuinely safe, as safe as we know, possibly, and they are genuinely effective. And the great danger 
of having is is that there are lots of medicines out there that have never been properly tested by this kind of double blind trial and we honestly don't know whether they work or not and the problem with having medicines that haven't been properly tested is first of all that people are not being protected they think they're being protected because they're having this medicine but it may just not work but secondly it diverts resources from the medicines that do work so we want to get rid of the medicines that don't work that, that there's no evidence that they actually make a difference and we want to make sure that that all the uh, the interventions the medicines and the treatments that we're giving have been proven as much as possible in uh, in this most stringent way in a double blind trial hmm. i mean it strikes me if i was kind of being a little provocative there is one easy way you could speed up this stage three process which would be to recruit volunteers to be deliberately infected with coronavirus and then you can just test to see if the vaccine protects them or not and that would be a much smaller group of volunteers and presumably much faster than just sending them out into their ordinary lives and waiting for a number of them to come into contact with the virus yes and and it's been certainly raised and discussed as a possibility um and in fact it's interesting that at an earlier stage of the pandemic when it looked as though the lockdown was being very successful and the and the number of cases was dropping in many places across the world many scientists were raising this problem they were saying look there just aren't enough cases for these big vaccine trials the only alternative is going to be to inject volunteers um but that of course raises all kinds of other ethical questions um you know this virus hasn't been around very short time we have no idea what the long-term consequences are it's possible that some people with so-called asymptomatic infection have really long lasting effects i mean what ha- what happens if it turns out that 10 years later there's a high incidence of dementia in people who've had who've had the infection i mean who knows what's going to turn out so it gives you pause before going out and deliberately uh, infecting hundreds or thousands of volunteers the the other uh, problem of course is that we want to know whether this vaccine is effective not just for young fit people between 18 and 25 who are prepared to uh, volunteer to be part of a trial we want to know whether it's effective for elderly people with other conditions um, now if we're doing the normal kind of, of trial it would be possible to recruit a whole range of the population including you know going to old people's institutions and uh, on hospitals and recruiting people who were vulnerable and had multiple pathologies if you're just going to inject healthy volunteers we might prove that the vaccine works in young fit healthy people but we it may not work in the most important population which are the elderly and the vulnerable hmm. what about if you were able to kind of find someone prepared to be a martyr effectively you know, I, I reckon if there were if there was a call, a global call for people, including the vulnerable and the sick, to put themselves forward, who are willing to sign something saying, "I'm aware I may die," do you, do you think would, would that be ethical? If it was all based on a kind of people saying, you know, I volunteer as tribute, effectively. Well, I think it would, and and in the, as long as I mean, again, people have thought long and hard of this. I was I was part of the research ethics committee at UCL, and we often used to have these. Uh, conversations the general feeling around the table was people are able to volunteer themselves to do incredibly dangerous things provided one that they have been given completely accurate information they're going into it with their eyes open 
and two, there's no kind of inappropriate coercion. So for instance, how much money would you offer somebody to be part of a really dangerous trial? Well, and the conclusion is, well, you could offer people maybe a few hundred pounds or at most a thousand or two for expenses, but you shouldn't offer somebody a hundred thousand pounds because that kind of inducement uh, might coerce somebody to do something really stupid. Um, so so a, even if people are volunteering, we have to make sure that they are genuinely uh, informed and uncoerced. And I guess the final thing to say here is that the other really critical role of an ethics committee of independent experts is to be is to make sure that the vaccine, the, sorry, the company that is developing the vaccine is kept honest, because you know if it's AstraZeneca or Moderna or one of these big pharmaceuticals that are all ploughing tens of millions of dollars into vaccine research, the one which gets there first probably stands to make an enormous sum of money by selling it around the world. Some of them have already taken pre-orders from governments for orders in the hundreds of millions of doses. So they have a huge financial incentive to accelerate the process and to declare victory by in finding a vaccine as soon as possible. And is it right that these ethics committees are supposed to be there to kind of act as a check on that because they're not financially involved? Absolutely right. And, and uh, of course, you're right that there are huge pressures here. And so th- there's huge pressures on the experts. And uh, But it, it, it's absolutely vital uh, for confidence in the future uh, in, in the vaccine, wh- whoever produces it, um, that doctors and patients and everybody can be confident that there wasn't some corruption or, um, you know, something unethical going on. Uh, and, and so it, ultimately it is based on trust. It's based on openness, that the data is, is open, uh, that there is clear safeguards to prevent the data being manipulated or um, uh, as much as possible there's an open and transparency. And, and I have to say, along the line, this is part of the concern about the vaccines that are being developed in societies like Russia mm. uh, or, to some extent, China, where, where traditions of openness and transparency and, and sharing of data are much less uh, developed. And therefore, you know, if Russia comes out and says, well, we've done our, a huge trial and we've proven that it's safe and effective and would you like to use our vaccine? And, and everyone says, well, we'd like to see the data, please. Uh, we want to be able to go over your trial in great detail. And if if Russia says, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's not going to be possible, then you can see that um, levels of trust are, are maybe not going to be very high. And that gets ties into the kind of geopolitics of vaccine nationalism in that, you know, there's huge advantage in being first and there's huge advantage for someone like Vladimir Putin to be able to hold it over the West that Russian scientists have beaten them to getting a vaccine. And the question is, do you do you trust authoritarian regimes like China or Russia to to resist the the kind of political payoff from being first to a vaccine? Um I, yeah, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't take one from Russia. <laughs> well, and and 
you know, this is a new situation. You see, it's 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 fascinating because normally vaccine development takes place over five to ten years plus, and it's a sort of low grind and and you know of interest only to a few nerds and public health specialists and so on. And and this is a completely novel situation again. The novel coronavirus is is creating novel situations to have this sort of highly politicized where everybody's you know um beating their own nationalist drum and saying you know we're producing the sputnik virus and then trump is banging his his drum and saying you know we're the best in the world and china is on there this is an extraordinary um and 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 i must say deeply worrying how politicized it it's become Mm. and that actually moves us on quite nicely i think to to the next thing we want to discuss, which is this question of let's skip forward and imagine that a vaccine has been uh, developed, it's been shown to work, it's been shown to be safe and effective. How on earth do we figure out how we take it from the lab and get it into uh, the bodies of 8 billion people on planet Earth who all need protecting from coronavirus? Absolutely. And I I think this is a huge ethical uh, a dilemma and challenge which is coming down the line and which to be honest most people haven't really started grappling with um, but what's happening is that a small number of rich countries are basically funding most of the vaccine development um, I, I read a statistic somewhere that the USA is probably funding 75% of the entire vaccine development around the world and clearly if 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 one of these or several of these vaccine candidates turn out to be, from all the evidence of the trials, safe and effective, then there's going to be enormous political pressure for the population of the countries that have funded all this, and the rich countries, to get the the vaccine first. And, And scaling up vaccines like this is by no means straightforward. I mean, it's a very complex process of biotechnology. It's not like making widgets in a fa- in a factory, and so uh, scaling up from a company that's capable of producing a million doses to a billion doses is the most extraordinary challenge. Again, it's, it's it is reminiscent of the Manhattan Project, you know, when they had to try to make this um, specialized kind of purified uranium, and and they uh, built massive. Uh, industrial centrifuges uh, of vast quantities to try to make enough quantity to make a bomb. There are some similarities there. But I think the real worry is that what's going to happen is that the vaccines are going to largely go to rich countries, many of whom are at low risk, uh, where while meanwhile the vaccine is going to continue to spread across the world in, in poor countries and and be associated sorry the the disease is going to spread across the world in poor countries and and many people are going to die and i came across a quite an interesting but troubling report from the bill and melinda gates foundation it's just been published and uh, we'll put the link up on on the website but um, they uh, were reporting some research done in a northeastern university that concluded that if rich countries buy up the first two billion doses of vaccine instead of making sure they're distributed in proportion to the global population, then almost twice as many people could ultimately die from COVID-19. 
Hmm. So it feels like what, what you're saying here is that the vaccine is most likely to emerge from a Western university or a high-tech Western pharmaceutical company funded largely by Western taxpayers. But in order to save the most lives, the best thing to do would be to share it primarily and first with the kind of global south. That's right. And so what the modelling was done on, on, just suppose, you know, in an ideal just world, we said that we will, we can't, we can't make sure that everybody has a, has a, we've only got 2 billion doses and there's 7 billion people on the planet, but just suppose that we spread this around in, in ratio according to your population. So obviously India, for instance, uh, would receive a very large number of doses, whereas Norway would receive a very small number. Um, and, and they did their calculations based on, 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 that, on that basis and showed that that would lead to very substantial improvement overall in the number of deaths. Do we think that's likely to happen? Well, how optimistic are you? Um, hmm. I, I'm afraid the, the sadly cynical view is is that it, it's it's never going to happen that um th- this is going to be yet another issue in which the rich world is going to protect its own interests and let the rest of the world go hang uh, of course the argument goes that it's not really pursuing its interests long term because if this virus is continuing to circulate in other parts of the world then even the rich countries are not safe and um you know no vaccine is going to be 100 percent effective so um it's in it's in everyone's long-term interest that we try as much as possible to if we can't eradicate the virus at least least to get it down to very low levels the role do you think for christians here how can we trying to be pushing the needle back towards a kind of globally just approach as opposed to a kind of a populist nationalist me first approach well i'm not completely pessimistic because i'm old enough to remember the jubilee campaign which which started in the late 1990s and um was in which christian voices were very very much uh, at at the core of that, and it and it was all about debt forgiveness for um, poor countries, particularly in Africa. Uh, and at that time, there was a huge debt overhang from the banks in the rich countries who were demanding massive interest payments every year from these very poor countries. And uh, Christian voices uh, were part of this worldwide campaign called the Jubilee Campaign. And it and it got an enormous amount of momentum and high profile and a lot of celebs and um, and then some politicians came on board, and I just hope and pray. You know, I do think there's an opportunity for some kind of movement, a global movement of generosity, to say yes, we paid for this, but actually we're all ultimately interlocked in one world, and 
I just pray that the Christian voice would be up there and saying we need a remarkable act of generosity. Um, but, you know, again, it's go back to the Second World War. The Marshall Plan was a remarkable act of generosity from USA, which was at least in part motivated by Christian thinking. Um, the... Christians in the US have been largely responsible for funding AIDS vaccination across the world and and uh, again uh, to remarkable effect. So it's not impossible. One of the interesting things politically is that um, in the USA it seems that both the sort of left-wing Democrats and the sort of more right-wing Christian right both have a conscience about global health issues and and so you could imagine some kind of bipartisan because that's what happened with AIDS vaccination there was a bipartisan move in the USA hmm. and this and on this just lastly on this issue then one fascinating thing for me is let's imagine you're now um Norway and you get your allotted per capita distribution of doses of the vaccine and it's not enough to cover your entire population What's the best way, do you think, for distributing it within a population? What's the fairest way? Do we say we just do it randomly, you know, pull your name out of a lottery and if you, it's just chance? Or do we give it deliberately to those who are most at risk, the, the elderly, those who have respiratory problems, those who are shielding? Uh, how, how do we, what's the best way to go about that? And again, very difficult and challenging issues. And should you be able to buy it? You know, should you should you be able to buy yourself to the front of the queue or, or buy it for your children? Or should you say, well, I'm sorry, you know, however wealthy you are, you're not allowed to jump the queue. I certainly think, again, partly on public health grounds, but partly also on Christian grounds, that there is an argument for going for the most vulnerable. Um, in the Old Testament, time and time again, there's three groups that are singled out, widows and orphans and immigrants, because they were the most vulnerable uh, people in society. And I think there's a good argument to say, well, who are the modern equivalents of the widows and the orphans and the aliens? And, and they are the people who are particularly vulnerable, often elderly people, but also people with health conditions, with immune immunosuppression, with, um, and, and, and we should focus our protective attempts on them. Do you think it, when a vaccine is available, it should be compulsory? Or do you think that, should, that it always is important to have freedom of choice to decide whether you should or should not take up this uh, medical treatment? Yeah, it's another very interesting and, and, and controversial issue. Interesting, in the UK, we've never gone down the route of compulsory immunisation. Um, it's always been felt to be something partly which is just inimical to the British style of, of concern for freedom and, and liberty, but also that it can actually be counterproductive, that um, this sense of, of, of coercion using the force of law can actually cause more people to be suspicious. And So we've always felt that persuasion... Uh, rather than coercion is is the most important. Other countries have gone down the route of coercion, and it, it's quite common in, in in many countries for a child, for instance, not to be allowed to enter public school, you know, at the age of five or six or seven or whatever it is, unless they can demonstrate they've been immunised against common diseases, including measles and so on. Um, I so I think probably I would vote for the British approach and say. 
let's not make it compulsory, but let's let's really go in for persuasion. And that means we've really got to challenge the anti-vaxxers, the conspiracy theories, and so on, which are, I'm afraid, spreading. Uh, there's a huge, there are millions and millions of people who who apparently believe some conspiracy theory that the whole attempt of vaccination has been uh, dreamt up by Bill Gates, who is planning uh, under the guise of a vaccine to uh, inoculate people with microchips so that they can be monitored, you know, and, and, and there are millions of people who genuinely believe this stuff. Mm. And that's what really terrifies me is that, you know, I've been kind of observing the rise of the anti-vax movement, which has been growing, I guess, for the last couple of decades, ever since the discredited uh, uh, study that falsely linked uh, autism and the MMR vaccine here in the UK, unfortunately. Um, but but in the last few years, particularly, it's really blown up, uh, often in wealthy parts of the world. You know, you see in places in California, there's they've lost herd immunity for things like measles, which is now back. Um, but what is really worrying as soon as the pandemic began is that uh, you can see how it fits into the conspiratorial mindset. If you're already suspicious of the medical establishment, of the pharmaceutical companies, and you think vaccines are a con, and then suddenly the government is pumping, you know, what you'll see as propaganda down your throat, saying you must, must, must take this vaccine. Surely people are just going to be kicked back even more. You know, the more you push people, the more they resist. Well, and this this is where, you know, issues of human psychology and so on, and it is deeply mysterious and troubling because, you know, at the very same time that we've had this physical virus spreading across the world and physically infecting people, we've got a pandemic of misinformation about the virus spreading across the internet and social media. And arguably, the misinformation pandemic is just as dangerous and just as likely to lead to deaths as the actual physical virus. And the trouble is that whereas we think we know how to deal with the physical virus, by and large, by getting a safe and effective vaccine, we have absolutely no idea how to control the misinformation pandemic. And this is where I actually feel quite strongly as Christians, we have a, a, a moral responsibility to um, not only take a vaccine if it's there because it's and it's safe, proven to be safe and effective, because that's a part of loving our neighbour, but also to, to advocate for vaccines and to try and where we can speak truth into the lies and the misinformation around anti-vax movement, because it really is has potential to be one of the most damaging things to kind of broad public health and the common good. Well, yes, I agree. And, you know, as a paediatrician, I've spent many, many man years of my life, not quite, but man months, talking to parents and sometimes trying to persuade them very reluctantly about the value of vaccination for their children and so on. I suppose I just, at the same time, we do have to respect the the right of conscience. You know, we're, it's easy to, to go over into a totalitarian belief that uh, we're going to use force um, which so so easily starts going horribly wrong so I, I want to use persuasion but I do want to respect people's right of refusal um, as long as they know the implications of what they're doing but I do also want to appeal to their uh, 
sense of community and solidarity and wanting to do the best not just for themselves but for the most vulnerable people in our midst and i suppose lastly on this it it also speaks to the longer term um you know enshrining and protecting the right of refusal uh, to medical treatments or, or you know whatever the state is offering that might be something we as christians would benefit from uh in a in a possible future universe so it, there, there is almost like a there's a stake in us in, in enshrining some of those liberal democratic principles of choice and freedom and independence and bodily autonomy exactly that's exactly my point i think the right of conscience is such a precious thing uh, in modern society not just for christians but actually for everybody um that it is so precious it's even more precious than trying to minimize coronavirus infection and therefore you know we just have to be careful that in our desperate attempt to attack the infection we don't really seriously erode individual liberties and rights which are so precious there is another issue which i haven't mentioned a, a really complex and difficult ethical issue and that is that uh, some of the vaccines, including the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine, has actually been developed using what are called immortal cell lines. These are cell lines that continue growing and growing for years after years. And and this particular one, which the, the vaccine developers have used, uh, actually comes originally from an, a fetus, an unborn baby who was aborted back in the 1970s in the Netherlands. And so that, again, raises a whole new set of issues about by having a vaccine developed in this way am i in some way colluding with the whole tragic and and knotty problem of abortion so i just don't think we've got time to uh to deal with that in any detail in this podcast but if you're interested i've just put up an article on the website which deals with that issue in 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 some detail so uh there's there's more resources there to explore this further Thanks, John. Sounds like there's plenty of us to be thinking about and getting our teeth into on this question of vaccines, Um, but we'll draw it a close there. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and I'll speak to you again soon. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, You can find lots more to read, listen to and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the Bible to artificial intelligence. It's all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter. And for some of my writing and journalism, head to tswyatt.com. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>